0: Assalamu alaikum. Uh, peace be upon you. Uh, nice to be uh, with each and every one of you again for one of the <clears throat> National Council's educational seminars, and we like to refer to these as cerebral massages. Uh, I'm Dr. John Duke Anthony, and I'm the president and CEO, the founder of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. This is our 40th year. And so we're commemorating it throughout the year with various kinds of programs projects events activities that we hope that you find edifying and worth your time and your financial emotional logistical programmatic and related support so today we have an issue that is burning as as any pertaining to our vision which is to strengthen and expand and prove and predict, predict uh, as well as predict, uh, the uh, Arab-U.S. Uh, relationship, that is, the relationship between the United States and its Arab friends, its Arab uh, partners, and its Arab allies. And people would take uh, issue with some of those adjectives that I just uh, mentioned in terms of uh, adjectives and nouns that go with it, uh, friends and allies and partners, okay? The National Council has its own way of approaching these uh, challenges. And we do so heavily uh, through programs to improve the coming generation, the emerging generation of America's leaders of uh, later today and also uh, tomorrow. uh, So that uh, we'll be in a less contentious world, we'll be in a more predictable world, we'll be in a world where we can anticipate better and our children and their children and our grandchildren uh, can look forward to a brighter and a more prosperous uh, future. And then as the case at the present time. On the vision front, we see this vision uh, being stronger uh, at the strategic levels of trying to avoid war and peace. And this has not been done by accident or by coincidence. No country or countries can stand alone or solely by themselves. And, and the uh, adjective that we are still the world's greatest superpower still obtains, still holds, uh, although people are chipping away at it. And yet that is a goal that we have in common. Economically, uh, to place this relationship on a more solid material uh, foundation where people can plan and predict and with regard to their standard of living and uh, their material uh, well-being uh, and then is the case has been the case or is likely to be the case Uh, and politically this is where the great challenges are and as much because of the domestic politics in the United States in this relationship as it is or has to do with the domestic politics of our partners uh, in the region. Uh, but We'll come to that in the discussion period and uh, with uh, uh, resource practitioners and specialists uh, as we focus on this contentious topic, uh, and the topic having to do with uh, stability uh, in the uh, uh, Middle East, North Africa, Arab North Africa uh, uh, region. Uh, these are the uh, vision aspects. Now, how do we go about this? We we go about it through one word, namely education, education, education. And we like to think that we're one among other uh, clearinghouses for uh, information and to shoo away misinformation and disinformation so that we can have a clearer picture, a less vexing one, and with which to make intelligent, informed decisions for our discussions and our policies and positions as we go forward. Now, our best program, from the view of parents and students and teachers, uh, has to do with what is the sister organizational program of the Model United nations, as is the model Arab League. We call it the Youth Leadership Development Program uh, here. And we couldn't be prouder of any more uh, challenging and rewarding uh, program uh, than this. Uh, What are we trying to do? We're trying to teach the following skills Uh, So that the young people coming into the uh, workforce and going into government service or voluntary uh, activities worldwide uh, can have a greater chance of success and effectiveness. This is one, two and three. To be able to speak more clearly, rapidly and effectively in public, Uh, to write more clearly, rapidly and effectively in public. Uh, to edit more rapidly, clearly, and effectively in public. All three with atrocious deadlines, which everyone complains about, and yet this is life. Uh, We we have to have these skills. We cannot expect to make progress and and to benefit the the president, let alone those coming down the road in front of us, uh, where we to try to wing this or uh, try to see if we could achieve it by luck. No, it doesn't work that way. And then uh, along those lines is how to organize coalitions in support of your positions, your policies, uh, your attitudes, your actions, your recommended notions of how to go forward better and more effectively than we are at the present. Uh, And we do this also through taking people to the region this is my past the half century mark and viewing myself as others view themselves as being at a university from which there's no possible uh, graduation, only in the best of days do some of us, some of us uh, get an incomplete. Now, the focus on today is uh, a new work by Dr. Anthony Quartersman who'll be the centerpiece, the centerfold of today's uh, session. And we'll have as a moderator, a discussant, and a commentator, uh, none other than uh, David DeRoche. Uh, Both of them have had a lifetime of public service there, and each remains close to governmental circles with regard to being consulted and asked for advice and supervisory input and comment on how we can avoid mistakes of the present and those of the near past. So here's the issue that they have focused on. It has to do with the impact of growing military and civilian instability in the Middle East, North Africa region. Geographically, hemispherically, there are 22 Arab countries, 28 Middle Eastern countries, 57 Islamic countries. Now, most Americans, or certainly a large numbers of Americans, if they were given an open-ended ticket tonight to go to this region, they would uh, laugh at the gift giver, uh, saying, no, 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 it's laced with terrorism and extremism and fanaticism. I'll have to write my will, last testament, etc. cetera. I take issue with this. Uh, 22 Arab countries, okay, five of them, only five of them could you call is unstable. And the rest are not. The rest are as stable, if not more stable than we Americans are here, embraced by, protected by, Two of the world's greatest bodies of ocean the atlantic and the pacific there now if you add the middle east where you have 28 countries uh you can add in there iran because is not an arab country but unstable of course it is and you can add in israel unstable uh, though it is all right and then if you add the uh 57 islamic countries uh, you would still have a tiny of the minuscule number of countries that can be fairly accurately described as uh, unstable. So we have David DeRoche, who's going to introduce our speaker. David DeRoche is a distinguished senior international affairs fellow at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. He's long been associated with the Department of Defense uh, uh, sections that deal with, with strategy and tactics at the uh, National uh, War College uh, there. And he will introduce Dr. Anthony Cordesman, who has written 50 books, five zero, having to do with matters pertaining to strategy and tactics and looking down the future and how technology and science and research are the keys to many aspects of unlocking the quest for greater stability and less instability in the region where it counts. And uh, David DeRoche has seen service uh, with the United States Armed Forces. He's a parachutist, a ranger airborne, um, and with his high education uh, in London at uh, King's College. David DeRoche, it's all yours, sir.
1: Thank you, Dr. Anthony. It is indeed an honor to uh, once again uh, moderate this discussion with Dr. Anthony Cordesman. Uh, if you are following uh, issues of security in the Middle East and you live in Washington, you know that we have the Lincoln Memorial, we have the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, and Dr. Anthony Cordesman. Those are pretty much our four uh, uh corners of the infrastructure in Washington. Uh, We're here today as the second of two discussions of Dr. Cordesman's most recent work, uh, focusing on the changing uh, uh, aspects of the Middle East. There's a link to this on your invitation and uh, on the event here when it's posted. Uh, Please read this. Do yourself a favor, but as I always warn people, make sure you are connected to Wi-Fi or else you will Uh, A friend of mine downloaded one of Dr. Portisman's reports uh, on vacation in Central America and got a $35 roaming charge. Um, They are comprehensive, encyclopedic. Uh, Before we go into the, uh, we're going to basically skim the wave tops of a work that really requires much more time. Uh, I think that uh, there's an elephant in the room that perhaps we should just discuss briefly. And this is the recent. uh, normalization of diplomatic relations or the reestablishment rather of diplomatic relations between Iraq, uh, Iraq, Iran, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, a lot has been made of this. Uh, of course it was, uh, signed in Beijing, although initially brokered by Iraq and Oman, who seem to have been pushed out of the spotlight by Chairman Xi, uh, I personally don't view this as a major development. We're basically reverting to where um, the two countries were in 2016. Uh, You know, having diplomatic relations doesn't mean you're friends. You know, Moscow has an embassy in Washington, and Washington has an embassy in Moscow. Uh, But Dr. Korsman, before we go into the presentation, perhaps you can share with us your impressions of this uh, breaking news.
2: Well, both countries have a strong reason to try to find some kind of better relationship. Iran is under acute economic stress. The buildup of nuclear and missile forces has certainly given it more military strength, but it's come at an immense cost and it's a major burden. And it has to look at the impact of Israel as a threat as well as what is happening in the Gulf as a whole And the fact that while there are some tensions between the United States and Saudi Arabia, the U.S. is firmly committed to supporting Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf states in any major encounter between Iran and any of the Gulf states. For Saudi Arabia, there is a question of, are you going to become caught up in trying to acquire your own nuclear and missile forces How serious is the nuclear threat? How convincing is the U.S. capability to reinforce Saudi Arabia and how committed is the U.S.? And then there is the immense expense that Saudi Arabia has faced through the arms race, which has now gone on for decades, at a time when it's trying to fund a major development program. So finding some way to relax tensions is important. The difficulty is diplomatic relations didn't help all that much when the countries had diplomatic relations. And will they really alter the level of military activity, arms imports, the ongoing question of, will both powers become nuclear over time? How will this affect their ties to outside powers? Does this mean that Iran is now going to sort of make a major shift towards China, or it is simply China providing an excuse? And one problem China has is at least to date, it's never been a major arms exporter or source of support to Iran. In the case of Saudi Arabia, the issue is what does this mean in terms of Saudi ties, not only to the US, but the Saudi role relative to other Gulf states. And I think the real issue in general from a strategic viewpoint is what does China get out of this, if anything? It may have improved relations, but one problem in brokering two opposing sides is unless they come together exactly where are you, except in the middle.
1: (laughs) I love how you speak in perfect paragraphs, complete with a Topic sentence and then a conclusion sentence. Uh, students will do well to study this. Uh, let's go into the presentation now. Mark, if we could have slide 16, please. Uh, what really strikes me about this, this is an overview of the region. And as we know, the region is, is itself uh, has points of instability, although it also has great points of stability. But another thing which um, strikes me is that immediately bordering the region, there's uh, considerable. Instability. So, for example, if you look at the Sahel region of Africa, uh, from Mali all the way across to South Sudan, you have uh, some of the poorest, uh, most poorly governed, most corrupt countries. You have uh, uh, mass migration. Uh, pressures coming from the south, from sub-Saharan Africa, through the Sahel into Africa. If you look on the other side of the Mediterranean, there's always conflict between Greece and Turkey, or at least the potential for conflict. Uh, the island of Cyprus still has unresolved uh, uh, issues. Uh, you know, even in Spain, there's, there's still talk of, uh, you know, uh, Barcelona, I'm sorry, Catalonia, um, breaking off from Spain. So there's there's instability around the region, which also has a lot of domestic instability. Perhaps a, a tour d'horizon, uh, if you don't mind, Doctor. Slide 16, Mark.
2: I think that you raise some very important issues. But the world is a very unstable place, and we live in that world, and we sometimes forget how unstable It is in general. And one of the realities of what has happened over the last two decades is that level of instability, which we once saw as somehow creating or ending in a global village, has actually increased on a global basis. Something like a quarter of the world's states qualify today as the equivalent of failed states, although for political reasons, We call them fragile states. We have more humanitarian issues today than we have ever had before. Part of that is a function of population increase, but part of it is instability. But let's look actually at the MENA region and the primary states there. Aside from a few wealthy oil states, particularly Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman to some degree, and the UAE, every country on that map within the MENA region faces major problems in terms of economic development, has to deal with major issues in terms of civil development, internal tensions and conflicts, faces challenges in terms of things like water and climate change, You have massive population pressure, something that most countries today are not even willing to discuss. And if you look at World Bank reports on governance, really only a tiny handful are rated as having effective levels of governance that don't involve either authoritarian regimes or problems with corruption or internal instability. And layered over this throughout the region, you have a major arms race, the buildup of military forces and internal security efforts, which now are to some extent driven more by internal instability than conflict, but you have civil wars and conflicts throughout the region. You still have tensions between Morocco and Algeria which is a country that is an army with a country more than a country with an army. You have an ongoing civil war in Libya, which has been damped down, is now less violent, but you have no clear pattern of instability. The one success in the so-called Arab Spring, Tunisia, is no longer a success. You have a successful but largely authoritarian regime in Egypt, again, a major military buildup in a country that needs economic development and whose population pressures have grown. You look at the Levant and you look for some island of stability and there aren't any. The worst case is Syria and you have hundreds of thousands of casualties over time, displaced, wounded, injured, or killed as a result of the Syrian civil war. You have instability, almost the collapse of Lebanon. You have a revival of Palestinian and Israeli conflict. You have no point of stability And you have no clear prospect at this point in time that things are actually going to become more stable. Iraq has been now a source of instability since the beginning of basically the Iran-Iraq War. It has improved in terms of governance. It has moved to some extent towards stability but it still faces a major threat from ISIS. There are still serious tensions between its Kurds and its Arabs, its Sunnis and its Shiites. And it does not have effective development plans and it has not moved forward in many ways as a developing power since really the war in 1990. Saudi Arabia is an exception but there are questions about its success and its efforts to move toward development and diversification. It is to some extent trapped in grandiose projects. And as you pointed out in terms of this sort of diplomatic recognition, it was driven in many ways by a massive arms race in a question of what's happening in Saudi Arabia. You have the UAE, which can, because of its oil revenues, afford almost any mistake in development, but it has certainly not moved smoothly toward developing its own population. And it is now an Arab state with a majority of its population that is non-Arab and consists of outside workers. Oman is again another exception, but it faces serious economic and population issues. Yemen is a civil war almost as damaging as the civil war in Syria. You have Bahrain with tensions between Sunni and Shiite, and between the population that is Shiite and outside labors, and you then come to Iran which not only has a nuclear arms race, but has been mismanaging its economy now for several decades, has massive inflation, unstable financial structures, and major development issues, and has to somehow find new approaches to weaponry, either through its own missile forces or through arms imports. So this is the real-world situation. And underlying it all across the region is the problem of climate change and global warming, population increases, which are projected to be massive through at least 2050, water issues, and urbanization, which we don't think of as a challenge to stability. But throughout most of the region, that urbanization has occurred at rates which are far too high for stable development of infrastructure, which have created serious problems in terms of employment, particularly youth employment, have brought together factions, which were relatively stable and divided into urban areas. And in many cases, you have created a new form of poverty. People have higher incomes, but much higher expense levels. And so in some ways, the region is reporting poverty figures, which are fundamentally false. It's using a definition of poverty where income is so low that people are being described as having left poverty, which in many cases, agriculture, or alternative jobs. The data are uncertain, and we'll be exploring that at your direction. But this is the real world that we now have in the MENA region.
1: You've touched on a particular bugbear of mine, which is the uh, correlation between architecture and governance. And uh, one of the challenges, I would argue, that in the MENA region where generally city planning is haphazard and poor, As uh, the population urbanizes, it increases the potential for uh, political instability because, uh, quite frankly, these ungoverned or these newly hastily developed, usually without planning, without uh, foresight, these sort of favelas become uh, areas of potential instability, which is... What Paris was before major Hausman cleared it out in the 1870s if we could go further down the Malthusian rat hole and I'm sorry this is so um, uh, uh, gloomy if we could go to slide 19 please this shows the estimate of rising violence in the region and looks at uh, death rates in conflicts so I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on this and perhaps we've already you've already mentioned some of the Uh, contributing or aggravating factors, but if you would care to elaborate on this, I'd appreciate it. Slide 19, Mark.
2: I think as we look at this slide, you see basically a rising peak that was driven by civil wars, particularly Syria, wars in Libya, Yemen, internal conflicts that uh, drove instability in Iraq, particularly because of Islamic extremist movements. And you see that those peaked and basically they have gone down. So in that sense, violence rather than development is not the problem that it once was, in fact, was only a few years ago, but the problem that you see in this graph is how easily instability in a given country can suddenly go from very low levels of violence through civil war or internal conflicts to very high levels of casualties and violence. The problem with instability is you can't predict when a demonstration or a series of demonstrations turns from demonstrations to violence, and and to some extent, the problem you also see here is not all of this represents in any sense a normal end to violence. You also see it was potentially at least the problem of repression. Regimes became more and more controlling. In some cases, they defeated legitimate opposition and peaceful opposition. So this is a warning, but I would say that if you were to look at this, I'd be more concerned about problems of population pressure, problems of political instability, failures in governance to move toward development and meeting the needs of the people. That I think is where we need to concentrate to some extent, unless we get another explosion like the Syrian civil war, or we see a return to very intense levels of conflict in Yemen and Libya. These will be a constant problem, but not the driving one for instability in the region.
1: We have a question from the audience. if we can go to slide 38, Um, this deals with uh, uh Saudi Arabia's ballistic missile capability and oddly enough we'd planned to discuss Israel and Iran's to, or I'd plan to ask you about it um my own view is that the Saudi ballistic missile capability which was purchased from China not operated by China uh is irrelevant probably because of maintenance it's questionable as to whether any of it is still operational um, the Saudi strategic missile forces do exist, and there is evidence that they are seeking to develop an indigenous ballistic missile. There's been, uh, for example, evidence of hard stand testing at facilities out there, but it remains something about which very few people know much. Um, however, we are aware of uh, both Israeli and Iranian deployed ballistic missile holdings, and this is viewed as one of the prime destabilizing factors in what had been a uh, a relatively well-defined military balance, or at least uh, from the Israeli perspective, there had been uh, conditions of strategic deterrence. I wonder if you could speak to the trends here and uh, your assessment of how you see this going. Is it going to become remain stable, albeit at higher rates, or will it become ins- unstable?
2: I think we need to bear in mind the fact that the kind of drone warfare we have seen in the Ukraine is also the kind of drone warfare that now exists in the MENA region. And virtually all of the MENA countries are looking at drones, even if they are not capable of deploying large payload ballistic missiles. So the idea of precision strikes, which can be launched at short ranges from anything from a Dow to a small aircraft, or from the land. These are issues which probably are going to shift the military balance throughout the region. You also tend to forget that aircraft today deliver precision guided weapons. And you're watching some of these missiles require very long ranges. When you talk about the Saudis, they bought an Anglo-French air delivered missile with very long ranges and very high precision capabilities. They haven't used it, but they certainly have the capability. In the case of Iran, it has not only developed ballistic missiles, but very effective anti-ship missiles, while Arab states have bought these, including states like Saudi Arabia and Egypt. So you are watching major shifts in the ability to conduct precision guided warfare. And I think one other thing that has really been a lesson of the Ukraine war is it's often hard to acquire mobile military targets and use missiles against these. It's not hard to target an air base. It's not hard to target a port, but more than that, it is much easier to target a fixed land facility unless there are very extensive missile defenses. And certainly while very few people discuss it, the Gulf is one of the most vulnerable areas in terms of targetability in the world because of its dependence on desalination plants and its dependence on electric power as a critical support for urban areas. These are problems which are shifting the structure of the military balance. In some ways, countries like Israel have also faced this. They've created layered missile defenses. How effective they'd be against the longest range, highest velocity Iranian systems is hard to determine. But Israel is perhaps the one country in the region with fully proven missile defenses, although Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Qatar are improving their defenses. So the balance is shifting and it's shifting in ways which extend from the shortest range missiles to the most sophisticated. It also is changing in terms of targeting, command and control, the ability to conduct more advanced forms of warfare. And this involves cyber warfare and other forms of advanced command and control and targeting systems. So this is not the Gulf of the Iran-Iraq war or 1990, or even the Gulf of 2020. It has major ongoing military shifts and it's far from clear where they're going how efficient they'll be in which countries are going to end up dominating if any kind of conflict takes place.
1: Well, um, that's comprehensive. I'd like to register a slight disagreement with you. um, And that is that I think Israel's uh, success in missile defense uh, is against mostly improvised and tactical missiles and really rockets whereas Saudi Arabia actually has a very impressive track record in intercepting theater, uh, machine-made, not not battlefield improvised, but factory-made ballistic missiles in theater. But be that as it may, uh, we can argue over that for days and days, and we have limited time. If we could move to slide uh, 43, please. Um, This is an overview of defense spending in the MENA region. Now, one of the points I always want I always feel compelled to make out here is when you look at dollars, uh, you can, you can make analytical errors. People, uh, Americans and Western Europeans particularly assume that any military spending is a bad thing, uh, because that's just in our blood. And, uh, somehow when you look at dollars, uh, you get the idea that a $1.3 billion sad missile defense system is somehow... Uh, you know, uh, infinite level, uh, uh, orders of magnitude worse than, say, the export of uh, $3 million worth of machine guns to the Sudanese militia for use in Darfur. Uh, But, you know, we measure what we can measure. And uh, it's true that there are a number of very large spenders to include, uh, as you pointed out earlier, Algeria, the army with a state which is always among the world's top spenders on defense, even though its development uh, uh, remains woefully inadequate. So could you just walk us through this and and give us your major impressions of this uh, trends in defense spending?
2: Well, one problem we really have, and you almost have to wade through a vast amount of data to discover this, is we are talking to some extent about a liar's contest. (laughs) A lot of countries basically are not reporting their real defense spending. Some do it by not really reporting on the cost of their arms transfers. Some simply lie about their own industrial efforts. Iran, for example, is paying a great deal more for defense than its public figures. Some countries like the UAE don't really report. You certainly, when you talk about developing countries that are spending something like two to three times the amount of their entire economy on military forces and arms transfers as any of the NATO European countries are, the problem isn't so much that arms are wrong. you have to defend and deter, it's that you have so much of the limited amount of surplus capital that these countries have being spent on military forces. And that comes at direct cost of development and the needs of the people. And that is a problem throughout the region, almost regardless of what the numbers actually show. There is a question for countries like Egypt, for example, which is doing a very good job of developing some of its military capabilities as to exactly what the cost is in terms of civil development and civil needs. Countries like Oman are honest about their defense spending and those spending figures are a very high share of the economy. The same is true of Algeria. So I think part of the problem you're watching here is First, not every country is telling the truth, and second, the problem isn't that countries shouldn't defend themselves. It's the fact that if you have very limited money, you basically have to make choices in spending at the cost of your economy and your people. The other problem is the definition of defense spending. One of the impacts that of what was once described as the Arab Spring was a massive shift in virtually every country in increasing spending on internal security. Well, internal security isn't on this chart. That isn't a defense spending, but it is becoming a very serious portion of government spending in most of the countries in the region. And to some extent, it is a kind of self-reinforcing problem. If you have a repressive structure of internal security, you provoke problems, which then provokes the need for more internal security spending. If you have deep internal tensions that you have to deal with, as Iraq does, you don't have a choice you have to deal with ISIS and similar problems. If you're a desperately poor country, as Yemen is, you can't afford internal security. So for all the talk of the Yemeni civil war, you have a whole series of other conflicts within Yemen for which there's no ability on the part of the Houthi or the government to actually provide any types of security.
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, one of the things I always tell po- people is that the uh, Saudi ministry of the interior, not defense ministry, employs more people than the uh, total uh, Qatari population of Qatar by a factor of, you know, I think almost twice as many. So, yeah, there's internal security is definitely a big thing and it's hard to capture Uh, Because it's spread out. If we can go to slide 47. Now here we see some people who do benefit. And this we can track with a degree of fidelity because um, arms uh, suppliers usually report their figures. Uh, You know, they may not report their costs accurately and their operating expenses and commissions. but. you know, publicly held companies uh, have to uh, at least report what they're doing. And there's an incentive to try to create momentum. Uh, So can you speak about the uh, legacy of arms imports and how that's evolving?
2: Well, as you can see from this set of graphs, you've had a steady increase over the years in arms imports. The problem you have to bear in mind here is that the United States used to provide an annual report on actual arms imports. To be honest, suppliers often lie. They often claim to have made major sales because that impresses other clients and because it indicates that they have successful systems. Time and again, they also have proposed contracts, which are not actually completed, while the real contracts that are completed are not being publicly reported. They often involve imports that violate sanctions or they're indirect, their components in similar sources. So, what we have when you look at this graph, and it's very important that anybody involved in this understands this is what is today a estimate made by a Swedish research center called CIPRI. That doesn't represent actual spending or contracts in any way. It is an estimate basically by CIPRI using standard prices of what the changes in the military forces in the region are estimated to cost if you include these standard prices. And it does not include a great deal of service spending and spending in areas like command and control and electronics. So we really don't have any clear estimate anymore of actual spending. There's no source that anyone now looks at that really does report on defense spending in a comparative way. And the only country that is legally now providing detailed spending that's relatively honest is the United States, simply because there's a congressional mandate that reviews any major arms spending. No European country does, Russia and China certainly don't. All I can say about these numbers is that they reflect again This type of capital spending has to come at the cost of development and spending on the civil sector. The one thing that does show up is in these lines on the bottom, something that we often forget in the United States, that when we try to sanction or reduce arms imports, other people sell them. So you see these lines shift And quite honestly, trying to restrict US arms sales almost never really has the intended effect. We tried to put pressure on Egypt, for example, in doing this, and they simply turned back to Russia and to other sources of arms. The one point that I think also is clear here is so far, China for all its advances is not a major source of arms sales. It has provided technology and components to countries like Iran. In that sense, it is going to be a more important source in the future. But unlike Russia, for all its weaknesses, it is not a major player in the development of Gulf and other Arab military forces.
1: Yeah, good point. And you you touch on something which, When I speak to academic groups, they're astounded by uh, most people inherently think that the United States is pressuring countries to buy weapons and actually goes the other way. They ask for stuff and we usually deny it to them. Um, there's far more denials than uh, approvals. Uh, if we can move quickly to slide 57, this is a kind of rough, uh, slide to, to view, but I hope it's clear over it. But, and it's very subjective. It's a uh, uh, relative ranking of freedom in various countries. The reason why I wanted to ask you to comment on this is uh, the view of, uh, you know, my, my bone embedded view that un- lack of freedom and poor governance is what leads to insurgency and instability. And we see, uh, you know, the, the record is not good for freedom in the region. So could you speak to this for a minute, please?
2: I think the problem you have with all of these freedom indexes is it's almost impossible to figure out how people are making the estimates. You'd have to spend a fair amount of time looking at the actual numbers here. And a lot of the time you'd wonder, really? That's how they've ranked it? (laughs) And then you look at the ranking from The Economist, and it's completely different. And you look at other rankings. And one reason for producing a study that compared so many sources is to illustrate how different the estimates are. And also in the actual analysis, a lot of these charts are described quite bluntly as this source is not reliable and the figures are either dated or they're simply figures you can't trust. I would suggest that basically you go to chart 65, which is the World Bank's charts on governance. And if you move on to the next set of charts, just the next one after this.
1: 66.
2: You begin to see how different a relatively reputable source is in looking at economics and corruption. I think in honesty, freedom is important, but what is often far more of an issue is you have weak governance. And again, let's move one slide further. This is the nominal level of governance. Now let's look at governance by country. Next please. 68. What you begin to see all of a sudden is that government effectiveness is a critical factor, and here I think the World Bank warnings of how different the sources are from Yemen at the absolute bottom to countries like Bahrain and countries like Saudi Arabia in Qatar, you see how different these are. But effective government doesn't necessarily mean political stability or freedom of voice. You see radical difference is in the effectiveness of the rule of law. And one of the chronic problems, and I think it's more of a threat to the region in many ways than the problems with freedom is corruption. You don't think of corruption as an abuse of freedom, but when you are consuming a very large amount of government revenues for a relative handful of people at the expense of virtually the entire population, you have pushed them into poverty and affected their ability to have jobs, to have freedom in ways which may be as much of an issue as humanitarian repression. And here, as you look at this chart, which I think is perhaps the most reliable picture, you see that the quality of governance, frankly, is simply not adequate. And here, I think it's important to note that long before you saw the Arab Spring and the almost implosion of government after government in the region, The UN's Arab development reports warned that these problems could cripple the stability of the region. People have forgotten that it was Arab analysts that first actually highlighted these weaknesses and who proved to be right in predicting that things like the sort of Arab Spring would fail. I'd also point out that while we don't like to mention this in the West, most democratic revolutions historically have failed. And they have failed not because of the sudden rise of repression, but because the people who acquired power believed in democracy, but had no experience in governing and in actually bringing effective rule to the state and if you look at the experience of the Arab states in the Arab Spring government after government of people who had never governed but had some kind of democratic origins failed.
1: Yeah well I tell you this is spooky because you jumped forward this is my list of slides and as you see I was going to go 65, 66, 68 so we're definitely on the same uh, wavelength here. Let's take a jump to 103 because uh, we're going to introduce another depressing issue here. I spoke earlier of Malthus, and uh, you know I'm, I'm a French Canadian. We speak of the revenge of the cradle and the fact that demographics are destiny. And one of the issues we've touched on it briefly is demographic pressure, and uh, you know there's there's it's an open question as to whether or not. There actually is, uh, you know, if the populations are increasing, particularly urban populations, at such a rate that the state just will be unable to support it and there will inevitably be conflict. So could we've posted two of the particularly high-risk, high-population uh, states here. Maybe you could address that for a moment?
2: Well, I think we already know that countries, by and large, throughout the region, have failed to deal with population increase. And one of the metrics, again, the Arab Development Reports have highlighted this, but so have virtually every source that has done a serious analysis of the region. You have massive youth unemployment. It has had its own gender impacts because when men can't get a job in areas where women are just beginning to sort of have equality in employment, they lose more opportunity than the men do. Mm -hmm. And these figures, basically, when you look at projections by the United Nations and by the US Census Bureau, which has its own very effective estimates of population growth, you're going to see this problem grow steadily through 2050. Now, one thing very few people really understand is if we go back to 1950, the average country in this region has a population which is seven to eight times higher than it was in 1950. Some of the larger countries you show here, particularly Egypt, already had a reasonably high population, but you can see from these figures how much things have grown. I can remember visiting the Gulf States when they were still under British rule and they were tiny populations. It wasn't a matter of five to seven times in growth. It's sometimes now 15 to 20 for the smaller Gulf States. And when you look at other data, data on education, I mentioned the fact that often you see data coming out of the region, which is the effectiveness or the equivalent of a liar's contest. One problem is people report the education in terms of years that people should have. It's brutally clear, even in urban areas, that many students aren't coming close to that level of education. And you have countries which basically don't report people as having dropped out, even if they've left school for a period of years. So one difficulty is with population growth, you're watching a body of people grow up, which because of war, tensions, all kinds of other sources are not being educated. The other one is age. We have a crisis in the US of people of 65 and over that don't have pensions and adequate income. In this region, you have what's called a dependency ratio. People don't have the health standards to keep working even if they wanted to. So population growth is creating a whole new class that's the product of improved medicine of older people who are dependent on younger workers, who in many cases can't get jobs.
1: Yeah, um, depressing. Uh, let's keep the chuckles rolling and move to slide one twenty-four, which deals with water scarcity. Uh, now, I'm I'm a I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and. Uh, You know, Los Angeles is a city based on the import of water. Um, You know, prior to uh, the genius of James Mulholland, there were probably about uh, 200,000 people living in Los Angeles County. And now I think we're up to about 6 million. Uh, So this is a global problem, uh, but it particularly strikes these regions hard. Uh, One part is... The genius of Mulholland is very rarely occurs, but just the geography is uh, not amenable to an easy solution. Um, And of course, the political implications are uh, brutal. Can you speak to this for a moment?
2: Well, it is a critical problem. You can today in most countries find enough water to meet popular demand. But a lot of it is fossil water. You're going to exhaust the supply of underground water, and it would take sometimes centuries to replace, given the natural rainfall, assuming there is no such thing as climate change. And climate change has already had a major impact, even in countries like Iraq and Iran you have serious problems in terms of shifts in agriculture. Desalination can cope with part of this, but desalination can't cope unless you have the capital to pay for it. And many countries can't afford desalination at the levels they're going to need in the future. Now, none of us can predict how serious the increase will be in terms of climate change. But one thing you can predict is countries like Egypt face the risk of losing part of their water supply because of Ethiopian demand. You already see in Iraq critical problems with the flow of the Tigris Euphrates because of Turkish and Iranian use of water. And Iran is seeing its largest freshwater lake almost disappear not so much because of water use, but because of climate change. So these are problems which also interact in cost with other aspects of development and affect investment and outside supply. How bad it's going to be in the future is something we really can't predict. But the fact that people have water now is not an indication in the future. And again, let me say, this is an area where most Middle Eastern countries tend to lie in their reporting. They are claiming that almost everyone has fresh water supplies that are perfectly safe and adequate exposure to sanitation facilities. As you pointed out, when you don't plan a city properly, one thing you don't have is adequate sanitation facilities. And when you don't plan a country properly, or it's torn apart by a war and conflict, as places like Iraq and others have been, Syria, you don't have adequate water flows. The numbers people are reporting are simply not honest.
1: Wow. <laughs> and when you can't trust the data, who can you trust? Well, um,
2: Let me just point out, David, sure. that every year, at least in the past, UNESCO used to have an annual conference on its, international statistical standardization. I haven't been to those meetings for something like 20 years. But let me say, nobody was standardizing anything. And in international statistics are probably more important from their lack of credibility than their ability to be used reliably in planning and studies.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I dare say you're right. I mean, the only water statistics that I um, regard as reliable are uh, Nile flow data, because that has long been bound by treaty. And so many states have both obligations and opportunities from the Nile flow. So there's such a level of scrutiny. And um, uh, uh, of course, the the gauge on the Nile where it leaves Lake Victoria is actually the sovereign property of Egypt uh, because they view it as being that important. Uh, So even though it's located in Uganda, um, but everything else, yeah, is a crapshoot. And even now in the United States, we're seeing. Uh, dispute over water flow data in the Colorado River Basin uh, because of increased scarcity. Uh, The only um, figure that is definitive is we know that Lake Powell is uh, uh, fast approaching the point of unviability uh, because of such increased water usage. So it's not just a a problem in the Middle East. One chart that I was really pleased to see uh, is number 130. And you've mentioned desalination uh, and, you know, when I was a boy, we'd read about this and it was seen as the answer to everybody's problems. You've already mentioned that it's uh, difficult to sustain f- for poor countries. Uh, one of my concerns about desalination is that you could accurately describe it as localized hypersalination, at least in the area where it discharges. And, uh, you know, just recently um uh, going back to another, you know, the arid climate I know best, the uh, greater Los Angeles, um, the California Coastal Commission rejected a proposal for a desalination plant in Huntington Beach, California, because of concern over the discharge. Uh, but I've never seen before until this moment, uh, a, uh, an, an accurate assessment of desalination as a vulnerability. And uh, I think that this is a concept that's not generally well known, even to students of the region, so perhaps you could talk about this for a few moments and then we'll take some questions.
2: Well, the problem you get into is the mix of vulnerability. It has environmental effects. It has a direct impact, of course, on the other abilities to invest in defense. But these are small, highly concentrated facilities in terms of military strikes. And if you knock one out, you can't replace it. There is at least in any quick sense. And again, one thing to remember is 20 years ago, we didn't need to worry about missile strikes, which could precisely hit a static target. The one vulnerability not only of desalination plants, but virtually every energy export facility and power facility in the region is they're now not only vulnerable, but unlike military facilities, they're not secret. You can estimate exactly where there is a long lead component that could take months or years to replace and strike it with a missile. And all you need is access to a worker with a cell phone to get a precise GPS coordinate. So this mix of vulnerabilities is critical. The other is, obviously, these are desalination plants. Well, to use them, you have to have piping and you have to have a highly expensive distribution system and you have to feed the water effectively. I mean, to population centers. Again, these spots on the map are a small part of the
1: story. Yeah, um, it, it's it's it is fascinating to me. I mean, um, and then there's there's other associated infrastructure just for for pumping. Uh, people uh, look at the pipelines; they overlook the. The burden of pumping, uh, which is uh, massive, Uh, particularly if you're, you know, most of these areas, the desalination plants are located on the coast. Uh, Population centers are inland, so you're going uphill. And uh, very few places are as fortuitous to have the downward slope from the Sierra Nevada into uh, Echo Park. Uh, Los Angeles. We have a question from the audience now, so please feel free to submit your questions to the email we have there, and I will go through as many of them as we can. Uh, This one says, do you believe that there might be another Arab Spring as violence, failed governance, inadequate income distribution, and hyper-pressurized political tensions are continually rising? If so, do you believe it will be more success than uh, in 2010, and what would make it different? what would the United States' response be to a particularly violent protest?
2: Well, I think if it is a protest, there's not much the United States can do. If it is a terrorist or extremist group that's relatively narrowly based, we can certainly work with the government involved. We can work on two levels. We can help with counterterrorism, but more than that, We can provide help in terms of improving development, supporting the country, encouraging the kind of reforms that are necessary. But we've learned the hard way that nation building is not something that is easily done from the outside. If a country doesn't really develop its government on its own, if it does not respond to the needs of its people, Even if you do occupy the country as we did in Iraq, you can create a structure as long as you're there that may meet the most urgent needs, but you don't really create the transfer of an effective capability. What's happened in Iraq is it's had to evolve and it's evolved through essentially two follow on wars to the invasion of 1990 against ISIS and against different factions within the structure of Iraq. We saw that failure in Afghanistan. It's also true in general that when you look at the impact of the IMF and the World Bank, and it's been very positive in terms of suggesting in helping countries plan. Relatively few countries have actually reacted by implementing the kind of planning and development that's needed. So if you have essentially another set of political upheavals, and they are upheavals by people who have never governed before, who don't bring together the factions within a country, which was the case within Libya. Certainly there was no movement toward unity possible in Syria. You didn't see unity inside Yemen or unity inside Iraq. You easily can see a repetition. Now is some form of instability in a given country likely? Yes. Are people likely to repeat the kind of very broad mistakes that you saw during the Arab Spring? I think that was a one of a kind case in which people with absolutely no experience in governance were often elected to positions that they had no capability to fulfill. But quite honestly, when you talk about failure, in terms of structure, a country that has not had this violence, Lebanon, is almost the worst example right now in the Middle East of governance and development. You've seen essentially a political structure almost destroy the nation's economy in the course of a several year period. So you don't always get violence in demonstration, but you can get failure.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, failure comes easily, it seems. Uh, we have another question from the audience. Uh, this is from uh, Stefano Delevi. He said uh, it's kind of a methodological question. Should we analyze value of supply versus type of weapons systems supplied? How many low cost weapons are supplied when we compare them to the cost of a ship, a tank, a plane, or a missile system? Um, I I think this gets to my point about, you know, uh, is a $1.3 billion THAAD missile system, uh, you know, a thousand times more destabilizing than uh, $3 million worth of uh, uh, automatic weapons provided to the Sudanese militia.
2: I think the answer is, very simply, you look at the entire mix of weapons and the problems in a given country, you look at the potential threats and you look at the internal instability involved. And yes, it's certainly true that an awful lot of the killing is done by relatively simple weapons and done basically really by repressive internal security efforts. Mm
0: -hmm. If it is
2: isn't killing its displacement, its authoritarian interference in civil society, The problem with missiles is they can do potentially much more serious damage if the weapons are directed against critical infrastructure, critical military targets, and particularly if they go nuclear or they use biological weapons. So the problem is almost one of exactly what kind of balance are you talking about? It's also true that nobody can really deter very easily with rifles or small arms or light arms. They're too easy to acquire. They're too easy to disperse. You can deter with the higher cost weapons. You can prevent wars simply because no one will take the risk of attacking somebody who has equivalent capabilities. But there is almost no way you can deter a demonstration from becoming violent, involving the use of automatic weapons. And there's no easy way to deter the flow of things like drones. Mm -hmm. These are systems that are simply too easy to move and to shift around. And we're beginning to see that with shorter range, things like anti-ship missiles and anti-tank guided weapons. There is simply no easy way to handle the issue.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, a modern drone is basically a surfboard with a warhead and a motor on it. It's uh, uh, hard to deal with. Um, Another audience question, and I should have thought to ask you this at the opening. uh, So that's my failure as a moderator. What does the China brokered, and I would argue China, Iraq, Oman brokered, agreement mean for the Yemen conflict?
2: Well, I think the answer is, it's not clear it means anything. I think that basically, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have basically reached the conclusion that there is no way that they can actually win by restoring the supposedly legitimate government of Yemen. And frankly, having a one candidate election that elects the vice president of the former dictator is not necessarily a particularly credible approach to democracy. Uh, I think that uh, it may have simply damped down in terms of Saudi and UAE willingness to participate. Whether Iran feels that it can continue to exert a useful presence, where the Houthi becomes some kind of tool, that is something that really isn't clear. They have been able to sort of support the Houthi in using missile strikes. They've been fairly careful that those are not the more advanced forms of Iranian missiles, at least in most cases. But we simply don't know. There's no clear correlation. The other problem that I think has really gotten to be critical is if you look through all of the numbers on the economy and population, governance and infrastructure of Yemen, once the fighting stops, it's not clear what gets fixed. Because if the fighting is the fighting involving Iran and Saudi Arabia, it's only part of the fighting in the country, and Yemen is so poor, so weak in overall governance, it just is not clear who comes in to actually deal with peace, even if you can achieve it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, I tell you, that's a really good point. Uh, When I was in government, we had a number of studies that basically this was before the war uh, really took over and the Houthis took over that predicted uh, total economic collapse and state collapse in Yemen by 2025. And of course, the big study was uh, I think it was a Citibank study that had or no, it was a UN study that had Sanaa basically being out of water uh, by I think the end of this year. So uh, Yemen was on the verge of state failure, even before one of the most brutal insurrections commenced. And uh, it really says something for the national characteristic of the Yemeni people, regardless of their religious or uh, sectarian affiliation, that they uh, are able to still persevere in what is a very difficult environment. Another audience question. The effectiveness of government is a major concern in the Gulf of military and civilian instability how can newer government systems work to increase their effectiveness? Would an increase in minority representation help? Uh, If there were to be a training educational efforts to boost newer governors effectiveness, who should oversee them?
2: I think that these are good questions, but the basic problem is very often that what you have are governments which are an elite, which sustain power by controlling employment, the use of government funds and investment, and basically are able to sustain themselves, even if they are superficially, as was the case in Lebanon, democratic. Training people to become sort of civil servants, is not usually particularly useful unless you already have a structure of government that is committed to honest development and which is committed to meeting the needs of all of the people. Bringing in token minority representation may simply mean that you have a minority elite that is benefiting at the same expense of its people that the other elite was. So it's not an easy answer. Governance has to be essentially built from the top down to be effective. Bringing in better educated people, bringing in younger people that are the product of that education, requires the structure to want to absorb people on the basis of merit. And in far too many cases, you are hiring younger people on the basis of family connection, ethnicity, sect, political contacts, tribalism, and often you are hiring them in ways which are remarkably unproductive. Iraq, for example, has probably the most inefficient or unproductive state sector in terms of cost of any country in the Middle East and one of the worst uses of its assets in the world. This is no mystery to economists in Iraq. And they've got some very, very good ones because I heard them brief and provide these numbers in detail. But as long as your best people that are already trained are not being given the role that they should be given, or you're not listening to them, or you're giving priority to staying in power, you can't build from the bottom up.
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's depressing, but I have to agree with you. And uh, the efforts to train sort of civil servants in emerging uh, would be democracies is is depressing. Um, there's two books out of Africa which I think are uh, uh, useful. One is called "Now It's Our Turn to" or "It's Our Turn to Eat" by Michaela Wrong, which deals with um, Kenya and uh, when a uh, ethnic minority government came in and basically what they discovered was it was just a different type of corruption. And then a work of fiction. Uh, No Longer at Ease by Chinua Achibe, uh, the great late Nigerian author who, uh, his work, work, Things Fall Apart, uh, is probably one of the most read works of African literature, but No Longer at Ease is the sequel. But as with The Godfather, I think the sequel is better than the original, and it deals with a person in newly independent Nigeria who is uh, groomed to be Uh, One of the elite civil servants for the new nation and quickly succumbs to tribal pressure and corruption. Um, I think this will be our final question from Dr. Dr. Rob Renfro, who has fond memories of flying next to you uh, from Riyadh to Jeddah in the 1990s. Says living in the region for the last three years is like being a a crab on slow boil. It doesn't feel like the situation is becoming less stable outside of the war zones, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Libya. In the past year, he's traveled to most of the countries we've discussed. Uh, Things have been vibrant and progressive. But how do we balance the deeply rooted issues against the outward appearances? For example, Saudi Arabia. As its national development plan, Vision 2030, it's an example of growth already reflected in uh, that we're seeing progress in things like GDP, foreign direct investment, and in culture. Uh, but is this now? I'm adding on this. Is this merely Potemkin development? Are we not? Are we missing the real situation? Is will the fundamentals of uh, geography and demography undo the best efforts of uh, visionaries such as those who wrote Vision 2030?
2: I think what we have seen is that we have been able to counter some of the worst violence in the region and move countries back toward some level of progress. The exceptions still are Syria to some extent. Uh, Iraq, I think, is making progress. Certainly Yemen is an exception. Libya is an unknown. And you are watching progress. The difficulty, as you pointed out, is the rate of progress relative to the problems imposed by population growth, by creating cities which are not efficiently and well-planned, by having corruption often substitute for effective development in terms of the use of assets, or simply often Yes, you're creating jobs and you're using government revenues, but you're doing that without creating actually efficient, self-sustaining operations. You're simply pouring government money into creating jobs which don't have a productive result. And the end result of that over time is A, you already are excluding a significant amount of the people, often the real world poverty levels in a lot of countries which are passive and don't produce violent demonstrations, maybe 15 to 20 percent of the population. And those numbers are likely to grow unless you see a much more honest and objective effort towards development. Here, the question often for political elites, which aren't corrupt, is if I want to buy stability, I may have to do it at the cost of effective use of government assets. And that's a trade-off which has a bill. But this isn't as if you had a Malthusian nightmare. What you have is rising instability, tension, falling short of the objectives and goals that people need and deserve. And states can go on a long time doing that. That's probably if you look at the way the UN and the World Bank and IMF and others rank countries, you have probably something like 30% of the world's countries are falling short of effective governance and development, but they are not the source of violence and upheavals. Where that ends up in the long run is an open issue. And that calls for prophecy, not analysis. And it's beyond my pay
1: grade. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sorry to go so, so much literature, but uh, one of Graham Greene's lesser works uh, is called The Honorary Consul. It's, it deals with Argentina, but there's a discussion in there about how uh, a, a truly Uh, effective despotic government keeps its people hungry but not starving hungry they're deprived of energy starving they become desperate and uh, I don't think that there's that level of calculation at play in the region but certainly you know we've only touched on your final remarks Touch on some of the uh, issues you know that bedevil it uh, the bread subsidy in Egypt for example uh, which continues to Uh, Stymie any logical economic development or government budgetary reform. So the bottom line is, this is a region that has had conflict, it ebbs and flows, we're currently in a relatively stable period, but superior leadership, vision, foresight, and investment is going to be needed, and that investment will come at a cost, and that cost may be um, viewed in, in uh, uh, sacrifice of short-term promise. And uh, governance uh, remains uh, one of the key factors. I want to thank Dr. Cortesman for this series of two lectures that he's given. Uh, both of them are on the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations website and their YouTube, ch- YouTube channel. If you found this lecture, you can find the previous one as well. Uh, This has been comprehensive, quite a a tour de force. Uh, We start off as a tour d'horizon, but it became a tour de force. And for that, I thank you. Um, We also want to thank Dr. John Duke-Anthony, the founder and president of the National Council of US Arab Relations, its executive director, Pat Mancino, and the uh, events and technical team, Mr. Mark Morozik and uh, Roland Robinson for putting this all together. the national council has an active program of events and public commentary which you can find at their website Uh, and i would urge you to look we have uh, pretty much a uh, about two to three events per month that are worthwhile and of course in october november the annual Policymakers conference is one of the highlight of the uh, middle east analytical and uh, uh, academic community and with that i want to thank once again Our distinguished speaker, Dr. Cordesman, for his time, his insight, and his willingness to engage and to skip very rapidly through uh, a hundred plus pages of slides uh, and uh, demonstrate his mastery of detail across the White Force. So thank you, Dr. Cordesman.
2: Well, my thanks to the
1: moderator. Oh, I just, they only hire me because I'm so pretty. Um, And with that, uh, thank you, and I wish you all a good day.